Welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you. Busy Tuesday here in the home offices where it is Olympics time. That's right. Every four, sometimes five years, the Olympics roll around. And I don't know about you. I'm a big Olympics fan, although this year is making it difficult to be an Olympic super fan because all of the events are taking place in the middle of the night or like the wee hours of the morning. And I've been trying to follow along um and i've been failing i'm not gonna lie i've been failing i've been waking up in the morning and looking at the results on twitter and then like going back and watching the events but hey if you are watching these olympics at the odd hours live kudos to you olympic super fans uh you have the dedication to follow along uh we have a great podcast today we are breaking down all of the analysis and talking points and results from the first few days of the Olympics. We're recording this Tuesday, so we are not going to get to the individual time trials, but we uh, have our takes on the road race and the mountain bike race to get to, including some of the weirdness that went on in that women's road race. Then we're going to hear from someone who was in the road race. That's right. uh, Corinne Rivera is calling in. She was seventh place in the women's road race had an amazing finish, has some great stories to tell about what it was like to be in that group as Anna Kiesenhofer was up the road and some people knew she was and others uh, did not. Before we get to our interview, though, let's break down what's been going on at the Olympics. We have Saiv O'Shea and Andy Hood on the line here. Saiv has been helping write the race reports and watch the events uh, live because she is on a much better time zone than I am. And Andy has been, of course, adding his historical knowledge and perspective on what some of these victories have meant. Saib, I'm going to start with you. Um, You, no doubt, have been watching these events live. I mean, what has been sort of the most thrilling moment for you up to this point in the Olympics as a live watcher? of the actual games? Oh, wow. Okay. That's a big question. Um, I guess there's two things, you know, it was, it was wonderful to see, um, Richard Carapaz take, take gold in the men's road race, you know, just from a historical perspective, um, and just what it means to, to him and his country. Um, but I think the, the women's road race and just that, um, finale kind of will she won't she um you know drama and the whole kind of confusion about the um the race radios although we didn't know at the time when we were watching it live that they didn't know what was happening um i actually thought anamik van Vluten was just really happy with second um <laughs> so yeah that that um whole kind of denouement of the um the women's road race i think was one of the most exciting things so far. I asked that uh, what it's been like to watch it live because I and many other American viewers have not been able to watch it live because these events are going on in the middle of the night. And I'm sure there are some very um, dedicated Olympics fans out there who have been, you know, waking up and shrugging off all social media and all news media and, you know, sort of like going back and watching the replays or people very dedicated have been watching in the middle of the night. I've not, I feel like I'm a lot of people, I've sort of woken up, rolled over in bed, picked up my phone, flipped open Twitter and been like, huh, Kiesenhofer, never heard of her. She's the Olympic champion. Okay. And then kind of going back and watching the races and watching them unfold. It's been, you know, I, it's it's been an interesting viewing experience over here on this side of the Atlantic because so much of it has been like, you know, you get the results already and you have to go back and kind of watch and piece it together. But that's good to get that perspective of what it's been like for you watching live. How about you, Hoodie? Um, have you been watching live and are there some moments that have really jumped out at you as, you know, particularly engaging cycling moments? Yeah. Hi, guys. Yeah, it's been uh, really fun watching these races so far. I have to say it's great walking, waking up. It's kind of like, you know, we're getting the treat how the Americans get the European races. You wake up, you get your coffee, con leche, you got a nice hour and a half, two hours before the before the race ends. And that's that's as good as it gets for me, really, because normally, you know, on European time, races all end at five in the afternoon cutting into my siesta time, whereas just wake up straight into the race, everything's happy. Um, it's also been fun watching the races because normally I've been at the Olympics the last uh, several editions and, and just like covering any race, 
you often don't get the chance to actually watch the race when you're at Paris Robay or if you're at the Tour de France, you're either moving around, you're working, you're you're you know driving from place to place. So just to get up and watch the race, uh, it's been a fantastic treat. And I have to say these these games have been pretty exciting. The racing's been great. You know the Olympics are unique. Small national teams, no race radio updates. Obviously, it was a big story with the women's race, particularly. And then on the mountain biking, you know, really puts that kind of discipline and sport really in the headlights for, uh, you know, the spotlight for, for really, you know, once every four years, kind of on par with the big pro road races. So, so far, so good. I think it's been a great Olympics and we've had some great winners. All right, we're going to get to these races one by one and, you know, go over the big storylines, analysis, and, and offer some takes on them. Let's start with uh, Carapaz's big win in the men's road race. You know, first Olympic cycling medal, I believe, ever for Ecuador. And I think only like the second, maybe the third Olympic gold, second Olympic gold medal ever for the country of Ecuador. I had put him on my top tier of riders to watch because oftentimes we see riders coming out of the Tour de France um, performing very well. And I just looked at that Makuni Pass climb and I was like, you know, you're going to have to be an explosive climber, someone who has incredible endurance. And it was basically, um, in my mind, Wout van Aert, Primoz Roglic, uh, Carapaz, and then Tadej Pogacar. Um, that said, the way that the race actually unfolded with this group, you know, elite group getting away and Carapaz chasing down an attack from our very own Brandon McNulty, been on this podcast numerous times. I did not at all predict the race uh, going out that way. Hoodie, as you were watching this race unfold, you know, what was your analysis of why Carapaz was able to win and some of the dynamics going on in that chase group behind that really prevented those guys from getting him back? Yeah, I was just stunned to tell the truth when I, when uh, we saw uh, McNulty go away uh, on that climb, you know, because, you know, he'd come out of this, this first Tour de France he had a couple of crashes during that tour. He'd done a lot of work, obviously, to help uh, Pogacar win the second uh, Tour de France title. So I was expecting uh, Minolti to kind of cool his jets for the time trial on Wednesday, where he actually has a pretty good chance of hitting the podium. So for him to be up the road like that was just shocking and, and great to see. We all know uh, what a great climber McNulty is, and I don't think he really had a chance to show it off really in the tour for basically circumstances. In a couple of days, he wasn't riding great in a couple of key days from his injuries. But, uh, you know, stunning race. And, uh, you know, Carapaz later said that McNulty was the ideal guy to get away with because he is so strong, not only climbing, but on the flats. Of course, he's a great time trialist, and he and Carapaz were committed to the end. And, of course, I think uh, Carapaz – you know, did the smart thing as that little kicker that rise, you know, on that finishing loop at the Fuji Speedway, there's a couple of, you know, rolling hills on, on the course there. And we, that's where we saw Carapaz, you know, finally uh, break the elastic to uh, Mr. McNulty, who I thought he did a great job. I thought, you know, when you're when you're in that position, sometimes, you know, you, you lose, you kind of you lose all hope and you just kind of give up. But for him to latch onto that group you know, finish in the medals group. And he kind of did a little flyer there at the end on the other side of the road when Vat was going up the left for the medals. He took a little flyer there. Sixth place. I mean, a fantastic finish for uh, Brandon. Yeah, I he's I, I, definitely the ideal guy to get away with a Richard Carapaz. I loved that when they would do the pullback shots of them and it was like, Richard Carapaz looked like Brandon McNulty's little brother. You know, it reminded me of some back when I used to race on an amateur level. Sometimes we'd have pro women come and race in the like cat three dudes field here. And I feel like I'd always end up in the pace line behind like Laura Krebs or someone, some like five foot one woman. And I'm six foot three. And I would just be like, ah, <laughs> I'm getting no draft off of you. The whole time they're away, I was like, poor Brandon. You know, of all the people in that group, he gets away with the smallest guy. So when, you know, he's sitting on Carapaz's wheel, he's probably getting absolutely no draft whatsoever. But, you know, really astute attack by Brandon to kick off that finale. And I initially thought that the group was going to have no problem in bringing them back. But Sive, as you're watching the dynamics in that group, I mean, why don't you think this group of heavy, heavy hitters was really able to bring them back in this chase? I mean, the, the Olympics is, that I mentioned before, that weird race where you've only got really small teams. And so often you end up, when, when the race breaks up towards the end, you don't have very many nations or teams with with multiple riders and that's kind of how we sort of found it at the end there and you know there was nobody there to to kind of selflessly put in the work 
which meant, you know, the, the leaders had to do it themselves. And nobody wanted to help Wout van Aert because, you know, <laughs> you know, after what he did at the tour, you know, winning a sprint stage, winning a mountain stage, winning a time trial. If you take Wout van Aert to the line, he's just going to steamroller you. So, um, you know, even even Pogacar didn't particularly want to take van Aert to the line. And so it kind of became down to him. And once once you start playing those mind games, you know, it, it's te- often tends to be just enough for for the breakaway to kind of take it. You know, it's those fractions of seconds where, you know, riders are really unsure about whether or not to take the chase. That doesn't happen when you've got maybe two or three riders from from the same team. Um, it, it is often that kind of defining factor on whether or not a breakaway can succeed. And I think to a large extent that had a um, an impact on Carapaz being able to to stay away um, and obviously his ability to kind of dispatch with with McNulty as well and just go it alone. And yet, Wout van Aert still rode as this one-man wrecking ball. Whenever they would flash back to that main group, it was like van Aert was on the front. He was taking some huge pull. He was attacking. Guys were trying to sit on him. Guys were grimacing on these, like, hills when he was really putting in a dig here and there. So, you know, kudos to Carapaz. I think he was the smartest guy in the race. But I think, objectively, you could probably look at that and say, you know... Wout van Aert was probably the strongest guy in the race and it didn't go his way because, you know, going back and rewatching it, to me, it looked like he was riding for a sprint. You know, once it was in that small diminished group, I think he was thinking, ah, this is great. You know, let's keep this group together and I have the best chance here in the sprint. And when that didn't go his way, he was the one who had to do the do the the polls. And yet he still finished second. So, you know, a, a kind of a textbook Wout van Aert finish. It reminded me of Imola last year at the World Championships where, you know, he's probably the strongest guy and does all the pulling and still wins the, the sprint for second. So, um, thrilling finish. I was, I was really happy with that one. I would have loved to have seen Brandon McNulty stay away and get an Olympic medal for the USA. But I think it, this race will hopefully serve as a big turning point, uh, in his career. Cause you know, whatever, 235, 240 K that tough of a course, swooping descents, steep climbs to see him ride that strongly. I think um, is a harbinger of things to come. But you know what? That's the men's race. The men's race was pretty straightforward. We don't have a whole lot to talk about there. Really the spicy meatball of this Olympics up to this point is this women's road race where Anna Kiesenhofer of Austria breaks away from kilometer zero, stays away and wins. There's all sorts of confusion in the main group. Annemiek van Vluten goes on the attack, raises her arms as she crosses the line thinking she's won and then finds out that, oops, we brought back you know, the four of the five breakaway riders, but not the fifth one. Um, Saif, you've been doing some great reporting and some great analysis of this race. And first of all, what can you tell us about this Olympic champion, Anna Kiesenhofer, um, her background in the sport and like what she was doing heading into this race? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting story, I guess. Um, you know, it's funny, many of her rivals didn't really know who she was. She hasn't ridden a pro race at all this year, um, other than, you know, doing her own national championships. Um, and yeah, it's, she's, she's a pro level amateur rider. You know, she's, she's, uh, she's got some strong results in her back catalog that, um, you know, show that she can compete with the best, but it's funny. Like she's, she said in the past and she said it again after her win, she doesn't really have an interest in, um, being a pro rider. She doesn't particularly like being in a peloton, which is why she went on on the attack. Um, she seems to kind of have, um, I wouldn't say issues, but concerns around um, people dictating how she should do her, her racing and how she should kind of live her life. She kind of, she gave quite a, a long spiel about, um, you know, not overly trusting coaches and, you know, the, the powers that be. Um, so, yeah, she's a, uh, She's a mathematician, very intelligent woman. She's a, a lecturer at the University of Lausanne and she puts her kind of spare time basically into um, training for, for time trials a lot um, and doing this um, tra- training for the road races as well, but more specifically time trials. And um, yeah, she's a, she's an interesting character. And I think, you know, it just shows that sometimes racing can 
can be about the kind of yeah if if you've got a big brain it doesn't matter like you know your legs might not be the greatest but if you can kind of figure it out and you know sometimes you can uh, overcome some of the the strongest riders so hoodie why didn't the strongest riders overcome this you know there's been talk about oh there's no race radios there's miscommunications i mean what was your take on like why this front group of women specifically Annemiek van vluten thought that they had gotten all the breakaway riders back but you know this kiesenhofer lady was still out there chugging away well, a classic communication breakdown at an Olympic level. Um, of course, in international competition, the road race uh, are being held without the race radio, without the earpieces for the Olympics, World Championships, European level racing, uh, you know, the European Championship level racing. So, uh, you know, a lot of the pros are not used to racing like that anymore. In fact, most of these uh generation of riders if i've never raced without a race radio since they've been probably juniors um so there was confusion on the road exactly what was happening uh you know the big question was you know whose fault was that uh was it a an error within the people on the road doing the uh the timekeeping you know there's the the old chalkboard was out there. We had also information coming in from the uh, uh, team radios. The, the Dutch were saying that their, their, their phone signal was bad, so they were getting they couldn't get the time checks off their cell phones into the uh, sport director's cars. Uh, we saw during the race, you know, when uh, Van Vluten attacked out of that bunch to try to chase down uh, the break with about 50 k's to go. I mean, she was asking the TV guy what the time gaps were. So in a situation like that, it's very fluid in terms of, you know, where do you get your information? Pros are used to getting it in their earpiece. And in this road race, you know, they disappeared up the road and there was definitely some wires crossed because like uh, Saif said, you know, I thought too that Anna Monique was just very happy to get second place. And it turns out that uh, she thought she was racing for the gold. So, you know, some egg on the faces for a lot, of, you know, the ultimate responsibility is, is with the riders. Uh, the, the Dutch just completely failed to understand what was happening in the race. You can understand why, you know, it's, it's confusing. You're out there riding on the rivet, uh, you know, and they were gone all day. So you can't take away from what uh, the winner did. I mean, she was strong. She made her tactics and, you know, she poured everything she had into it. So kudos to her for winning. But this whole issue of, you know, race radios in the Olympics continues to churn in the background. I, I think for me, one of the big problems for the Dutch, uh, which, you know, we possibly could have foreseen before the race as well was that they went in with four leaders. They didn't come in with a road captain. They didn't have somebody that could just control things, corral things, make sure that everything was okay. I think perhaps if they'd had a road captain, um, things might've been a little bit different. Somebody like Ellen Van Dyke, who's you know very used to marshalling things, uh, making sure that, her teammates are in the right place at the right time. Um, the Dutch kind of rode quite a strange race. They were very rarely together within the bunch and very rarely talking to each other. Um, you know, it was it was quite strange. Like they just always seemed to be in separate parts of the the peloton. Um, and yeah, there just didn't seem to be one person that was kind of looking after things. Um, and I think that for me was possibly the biggest problem and had they had somebody like that, like Van Dyke or just one of the riders um, was willing to sacrifice their own chances to be that person. Um, you know, we might've seen a different outcome. Yeah. That's interesting because so much of our analysis around the Dutch team heading into this race was obviously they are the strongest, but they are a series of strong individuals. Mariana Voss could win. Annemiek van Vluten could win. Anna van der Bregen could win. Um, Demi Fullering could win, but you're right. I mean, there wasn't sort of that person who was the dedicated road captain, domestique person shouting out orders. And it showed in the post-race interviews, Van der Bregen said she did not know there was a rider up the road. Van Vluten obviously did not. Marianne Voss said she did know there was still a rider up the road. But she found out after Van Vluten had gone up the road. So apparently she found out with about three kilometers to go, at which stage it was too late. And obviously you don't have any race radio. You can't radio that up the road. And, you know, I don't think Mariana Voss can shout that loud. So, um, you know, they found she found out. But by that stage, it was already too late to, to, to tell her. And I wouldn't have made a difference anyway, other than the kind of maybe slightly bruised ego of celebrating a second place. Um, you know, they, they didn't have any the time left to 
to chase Kiesenhofer down by that stage. Yeah, I think one thing that stood out to me, having you know seen the result and known the result and then gone back and watched it, is that once they really did start to attack and try to break up that group, the gap to Kiesenhofer was still huge and it was inside three or four Ks to go. So like the announcers were already saying like, oh my gosh, like she has won the Olympics. Like this gap is far too big to cross in two Ks to go, even if it is van der Breggen or uh, van Vluten or whoever gets away, you know, it's like this, they've, they've left it too long. And in the, in the aftermath, I, I saw some analysis online. And of course on Twitter, there was a lot of back and forth. And some people were hypothesizing that the time checks that were being given were actually from Kiesenhofer to the two cyclists behind her chasing, or, which made the gap seem much smaller so that the, the main field thought they were actually having to cr- to, close a much smaller gap with like 10 Ks to go or whatever, even though that gap was actually, you know, three, four, five minutes. Had they known it was that, they would have put the pedal to the metal. I think another interesting element, though, is that it sounds like, you know, most of the, it was kind of negative racing and everyone was really looking to the Dutch to pull back brakes and set the pace and do this, that, and the other. And when someone would attack, everyone was just on them. And I also, I just wonder if that, played into the dynamics that we saw in this event too yeah it was a very weird race like for i would say maybe like 65 percent of the race it was like nobody seemed to want to work and um, not even the dutch like nobody wanted to work the only people who really came to the front for a lot of the time were, were the germans um but like they weren't it was like a half-hearted sort of sitting on the front um and yeah, it was almost like they were out on a training ride for a lot of it. It didn't look like it was it was a race, and they actually they let the the breakaway get over ten minutes, um, and never like which is you know which is okay, but then they they still spent like twenty k thirty k keeping it at ten minutes. You know, it wasn't like it peaked at ten and came down. Like it stayed out for a very very long time, um, and the. Yeah, like Lizzie Diagnan said afterwards, like it was an incredibly negative race. And I think that's, I mean, obviously the other nations decided to race like that. But when when a, a team like the Dutch who win everything throughout the season, you know, they, they won, like a Dutch rider won La Course, the Giro, Flanders, um, you know, Strada Bianchi, although she wasn't in the race. But like, yeah, the they, a bit like, there are other riders not wanting to work with Van Aert in the men's race. They know that if they bring Mariana Voss or Demi Vollering to the line, they're going to get trampled. They know that if they bring Annemiek van Vluten around Van der Breggen to the, the big climb, they're going to get blown out the back. Um, and so, yeah, it's when, when you've got a team that's that strong and that formidable, you kind of, it can negate racing, basically. It can kind of crush things a little bit. So then, Andy, my big question to you, and this will be the ethical question that will be mulled over, the sports radio question. Hey, you're on uh, 950 AM, the fan. We're going to be debating this big topic. Did Anna Kiesenhofer win the gold medal or did the Dutch blow it? Where do you fall? There can only be one right answer, Andy. What's your opinion? Uh, I, I think I think Anna won the race. I mean, uh, all those things that Slive just talked about, and then the other part, other part of that equation was, you know, she had she was very strong once she was up the road, and they were committed in that group. I remember watching at one point when uh, Van Vluten did that kind of a jump with about I think it was fifty k's to go, uh, and she was out there pulling by herself. You know, typically a gap against a group like that would quickly diminish. When Van Vluten is off the front, like we saw her tour Flanders, you know, she just powered away and, and uh, chewed up the race. And uh, that gap did not go down. They were holding this five minute gap, even with a pretty concerted uh, chase by Van Vluten. And then when she was caught back by the main group, again, there was all this negative racing, but the riders at the front were very strong and very committed. And uh, I remember when uh, she attacked out of her breakaway companions. A lot of people at the time were thinking, well, that's, that's not so smart because three riders can work together better to get to the line. But uh, Anna uh, sensed 
that she was going to be able to go a lot faster by herself and, and attacked, I think it was with 40K to go. I can't remember how, exactly the distance, but, you know, rode that in by herself and you could just see you know, how much she was suffering and how determined she was to hang on. I mean, you could see her hyperventilating almost on the bike. So, I mean, for me, she, she won that race and it was, it was an incredible Hollywood story, you know, kind of epitomizes what the Olympics are all about. Uh, it's been interesting to see some of the reaction from people about uh, the criticism about the race radios. Do they need to be in or out of the Olympics? Personally, I think race radios should belong in a, in a top level race, but you know, chapeau to, uh, to the winner. I mean, she won at fair and square. I'm going to beat you. I think, the Dutch team blew it. They were the strongest in the field. If they'd have known what was going on, if they had any information that was correct up to that point, they would have pulled poor Anna Kiesenhofer back, shot her out the back of the field and gone on to win. Um, I actually don't know if that would have happened, but for the sake of debating, I mean, it's going to be the interesting storyline that cont- that will follow the uh, 2021 Olympics from now through the next few years. I think that like 10, 15, 20 years from now, people are just going to look at the result and they'll say, oh, wow, you know, Anna Kiesenhofer, Olympic champion, 2021. There you go. You know, you're Olympic champion. I think it is worth noting, you know, she now joins this very small collection of women's road race Olympic champions, Anna Vanderbregen, Mariana Voss, Nicole Cook, Sarah Kerrigan, Jeannie Longo, Connie Carpenter. There's a couple names in there that I'm not as familiar with. Monique Knoll, uh, Kathy Watt, you know, won a very, she was a very strong cyclist, Australia. And then, uh, the, the name I always just have the hardest part, the Dutch cyclist, Linton Van, Van Moorzel Ziljar, you know, she won a million gold medals too. So I think it will be interesting to see if Anna Kiesenhofer continues in the sport and does anything else noteworthy that we can like attach her name to, or if she is the um, I, one hit wonder is sort of, I would see that might be a derogatory term, but like, imagine if your one hit was like the biggest rock song of all time. And then you just like put down your guitar pick and your drumsticks and like surfed your way into the rock and roll hall of fame. If she's going to be uh, that type of cyclist, I guess time is going to tell on that side. Which, which pathway would you predict for old Anna Kiesenhofer? Is she going to like sign a big pro contract and go dominate the women's Giro? Or is she going to go back to her teaching job and, um, you know, be introduced to all of her mathematics classes from here out as the Olympic champion who um, is now going to be teaching you advanced calculus? I I don't see her signing a big full-time pro contract. I think if she signs a pro contract, it will be kind of like a, a guest rider that will take her, like she'll come to some of the big, the big races and do kind of a few select things um, during the season. I don't, she doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that she really has the desire to do that. And I mean, being a pro cyclist, you know, you really have to want to to have that lifestyle and that desire. So I think if she does sign a contract, she'll do um, limited number of race days, um, which, you know, potentially she could still come out and hit some, some big results. Um, the thing is, you know, she doesn't have that element of surprise anymore. Um, She's not going to, now that they know what she can do, she's not going to be allowed up the road again like that. Or if she is, she's going to be kept on like very close quarters. So, um, yeah, I, I, th- I think we'll see her, at, we will see her at some races um, in the, in the future. How many, which ones, I think that's hard to predict. Um, and whether or not she can um, re- relive the, the glories of, of Olympic gold um, or if this is her kind of, well, she's, she does have some wins already, but if this is like her real big win, I mean, what a what a win to have. So. I hope she rides off into the sunset and just goes back to lecturing math students. And it's just like, yeah, you know, that one time I trained really hard, won the Olympics, went back to work. Uh, it was just, you know, maybe, maybe she'll go climb Mount Everest or win a triathlon Ironman World Championship or something like that. Um, I, I would love to see that for Anna Kiesenhofer. Uh, before we get out of here, uh, mountain bike races were thrilling and entertaining. We had a like a typhoon roll in for the women's mountain bike race. It turned into a muddy quagmire. And the Swiss just stomped everyone with Yolanda Neff taking the win. I think it's really noteworthy to think that, you know, end of 2019, Yolanda Neff has this, I mean, she's described it as a life-threatening injury. She crashed into a stump in North Carolina and required um, surgery, like immediate surgery. I believe it was, I mean, internal bleeding, um, 
spleen or something like that. It was a bad one. And it's been chronicled. She did like a video of the actual crash and of her recovery and everything like that. So big, big win for her. Uh, she also broke her hand um, like seven weeks ago as well. And just, a, I think, a very fitting Olympic champion. I mean, all around rider. Just she, I, I, of all of the um, women, of all the un- men's, women's, whoever mountain bike out there, I put her up there in terms of like um, the smoothness at which she rides. Like you see some people power through trails and over obstacles. And when you watch Yolanda Neff, she floats and she has this high cadence pedal stroke. And it's just this very fluid. I mean, it's like a, she's like a work of art on a bicycle, I feel like. Yeah, it was uh, her race today was um, incredible. I mean, she, she very nearly had a moment um, in the same place that Vanderpoel crashed um, when her and um, Fran Provost were coming through. Um, the uh, ramp was there on this occasion. Um, but yeah, she took a line and ended up sort of coming off towards the, the side of the ramp, so actually didn't, didn't go anywhere near it. Um, and then, yeah, from then on, like, Fran Provost had a, a bit of a weird accident, um, and that was it. <laughs> Neff was just sailing off into the distance. And I don't think I saw her put, like, other than that weird little moment on that... Um, by that ramp, I don't think she put a foot wrong for the entire race. Like it was, it was like a masterclass in how to to do a mountain bike race. And then in the mid race, I mean, Tom Pidcock takes this huge, stunning victory, and the showdown with Vanderpool didn't really materialize after Vanderpool crashed early on that drop where they had taken the ramp out, and he said he thought the ramp was still there. It wasn't. There's been footage of him just like skying over this thing. I mean, scary drop. Um, hoodie. A question I have for you, because I've been thinking about this too. It's like, we've been covering Matthew Vanderpool's buildup for the Olympic mountain bike race and how he has sacrificed so much in the world of road cycling and catered his schedule and everything around this event for so long. Um, and it has ended in, you know, bitter disappointment. Do you think he returns to mountain biking or or did, did we see, was this going to be like the final Matthew Vanderpool big elite uh, cross-country mountain bike race. It, it's hard to say. Uh, I know he was saying some comments that he he already is planning to race in Paris, which is only three years from now, uh, in mountain biking. We'll see what, how some of the other courses, you know, the road course might be good for him too. He could do both. Who knows? Um, it was interesting though, just what, you know, he wasn't in the race very long. He crashed out on that, in that first lap, but just watching that first start loop and then coming through that first half or three quarters of that of that loop that he did of that lap that he did. He just seemed really tense. I didn't see him really looking confident on the bike. I don't know. He was like, you know, seventh, eighth wheel going into that first lap and, and just didn't seem like he was, uh, you know, he had like the magic in his legs. Cause you know, he came in late. He came in, I think on the Friday, you know, tried to squeeze in, the whole experience in Japan and everybody I've talked to who's gone to Japan said it was a nightmare traveling there. It, you know, it took a lot longer than uh, people expect to get stuck in the airport six, seven, eight hours, you know, set to have all that condensed uh, really just a couple of days before the, the actual race might not, might've backfired a little bit in terms of him just coming in to that race in the best possible way. But for him to, you know, Miscommun- have the miscommunication on that uh, ramp. Uh, it was there during the, the, the practice runs where, you know, you could hit it at full speed or they had it in there if you wanted to take it at slower speed and just ride down that ramp. And everyone else on his own team and everyone else in the, in the race understood clearly that the ramp was not going to be there. They put it back in for the women's race because of the rain and the course conditions had changed so much. It felt, felt that it was a safety issue to have the ramp in there, but it was definitely not part of the men's race. And for him to, to you know misfire on that jump and just do an endo, really, I mean, it's obviously when he crashed like that, that it was obvious that he thought the ramp was going to be there. So for him to not understand that and not have that in his mind kind of to me revealed, I don't know, his tension, his mind wasn't there. It just didn't seem like the, the giant killer Vanderpool that we've so accustomed to. And then Pidcock rode just absolutely superb race. What a future that kid has. I mean, he was flawless, uh, just like Neff was in the women's race, just a superb race, uh, sunny performance. And he's committed to race the Welter Worlds and the uh, U.S. World Cup races in the fall before coming back to race in the cyclocross world championships in Arkansas. Yeah. I mean, these, these uh, world cup mountain biking has evolved even in the years when I was covering it, like 2009, 2010, 2011 to such a 
terrifying uh, spectacle where it's like short climbs, like out of the saddle, full gas, full power, no rest into a terrifying drop. It's not even like, you know, some of these courses, okay, it's like a rocky descent or sort of a technical descent, but a lot of times it's just like a drop. And that's what this was. I mean, you see the clip and it's just like, he's falling off a cliff onto a steep descent and just tumbling down with his bike bouncing off of him. And so it really speaks to, you know, you have to have this incredible engine and this incredible ability to generate power in a short amount of time and then somehow recover as you are flying off of some type of structure or over some (laughs) crazy obstacles. Like, you know, people talk about, oh, well, World Cup mountain biking, it's not real mountain biking. It's, you know, these short circuits and stuff. You don't have to be technically adept. Let me tell you, you have to be really technically adept to race World Cup mountain biking. Um, Scythe, as our resident uh, GB cyclist, uh, GB cycling specialist, what do you expect to see happen to Tom Pidcock in the world of GB cycling now that he is Olympic champion in mountain biking? Are you going to, are they going to like erect billboards of him in Piccadilly Circus? Will the BBC change its name to the BBP, the, the British broadcasting Pidcock like I, I expect to see him now become like surpass even Teo as the new face of uh, GB cycling I think I think gradually we're going to see that um, I think still at the moment with with GB cycling the big the big money and the big kind of um, publicity comes from road racing and track racing um, and the mountain bike and the BMX are sort of still a little bit of a, a sideshow, but I think with with somebody like Pidcock doing that, um, and just the performances he puts in, the personality that he's got, he's a very confident person. He speaks quite well. Um, I think over the next few years, between now and Paris, we're, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see his star rise. Um, you know, he's he's gonna get more more well known here. Oh, I say here. That's not when I say here. I mean on this side of the the world. Um, and yeah, he. I think by Paris, he's going to be a very well known rider. Um, and I think what he does there will really be the key as to to where his um, star goes in terms of like the wider public of. Um, Great Britain and Northern Ireland um, because he did say he, he was already musing on this before he'd even like raced on Monday that in Paris 2024, he wants to do the mountain bike again, but he also wants to do um, the road race and maybe even the time trial. Like when you consider the fact that many of the, uh, the riders that were going towards the mountain bike were kind of winding down their road commitments to really focus on that discipline because they are so different. Um, it will be interesting to see how and if he can do something like that because, you know, we've seen riders now for a couple of years maybe mixing the the road commitments with the track like Chloe Dygar and Filippo Ganna, but we've never really seen anybody do it with the discipline that's so disparate as as the uh, the mountain bike event, um, but yeah, Tom Peacock I think has a a very big future ahead of him. Yeah, I mean it just it's the continuation of this weird new era of cycling we're in with the crossover stars, Wout Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool, Tom Pidcock. It's like they're all trying to outdo each other. You know, I expect maybe one of them to yeah do a triathlon or like a disc golf tournament or maybe like play drums in one of the bands that's performing at the Olympics uh, in, in, in Paris. Well, Pidcock has already said he wants to do some downhill mountain bike racing as well. Sure. So talk about multidimensional. Yeah, he's racing the uh, four cross and the Kirin and the road time trial. And he actually has a dance marathon coming up uh, after the games as well, you know. <laughs> Well, uh, one thing he said he won't do is do the track because that's boring. Um, but yeah, I imagine uh, during his career, because he's still only 21, he's still young, and uh, we're going to see him do an awful lot of stuff. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I think he's going to be him, you know, Van der Poel, Remco Van der Poel. We need to see him now do some, you know, other disciplines. You know, he's he's just uh, being playing it safe and sticking to the road. You know, we need to start a campaign to get Remco Evenepoel um, doing maybe the cyclocross in the winter or something. Yeah, base jumping. I think that's what he could do. Uh, track cycling, 
just uh, as a uh, as a fact checker here, is not boring, Tom Pidcock. In fact, next week on the Velo News podcast, we're going to have so much track cycling content coming out of your ears. Much of it will be myself and Sive learning about track cycling from these Olympic events and having takes on like, you know, the Madison or whatever and uh, expressing our um, somewhat ignorant takes on, on watch track, watching track cycling. Because I don't know about you, Sive, but track cycling is sort of a once every four, maybe once every two or three years uh, type of thing for me. Uh, I actually, uh, well, I grew up watching watching track cycling. I haven't watched much of it in the last few years because road sort of takes over everything. But um, my my brother used to do some track cycling. And when I was at university, I'd travel down to the, the Manchester Velodrome a lot and watch races um i love my my favorite races the madison and the uh what well it's called the elimination race but i don't know in in the u.s but we call it the um the devil um because the nickname for it is the devil takes the hindmost um and uh yeah i, I love that race um i think it's watching um laura kenny do that event is i think one of the the most uh, interesting tactical things you can watch. The the devil or the elimination is now part of the Omnium and uh, we have Jennifer Valente competing in that. So we're going to break that down. Um, the devil. I like that. That's a good nickname for it. The devil went down to Swindon, I believe is the uh, UK version of the Charlie Daniels band. Well, we're going to have all sorts of takes and analysis on that next episode of the podcast. Uh, but I think that's going to basically do it for us with these uh, first few events. It's been a good Olympic so far. I give it um, five rings up to this point. Five Olympic rings. I can't, you know, draw them or, you know, the Olympics would send their copyright guy on, on me. And now on the podcast, it's Corinne Rivera. She's back in the United States, even though her internal clock may still be back in Japan. Uh, Corinne, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. So, Corinne, we're recording this a couple days after the uh, women's road race, and I want to ask you all about the race and your experience over there at the Olympics. But, I mean, it's just a quick question for you. Like, how has it been returning home um, as an Olympian, but also as a person whose, you know, internal clock is now all over the place? <laughs> Yeah, it's a whirlwind of emotions and all over the place and to achieve such a big goal that's been, you know, around for such a long time and delayed for a year as well and throughout the, all the hardship along the way too. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of all over the place and then I still want to watch all the competition and, and other events and, and racing. So I'm kind of up late still watching. So I'm a little bit still on Tokyo time. Uh, stayed up late watching the men's time trial yes, last evening and also the women's time trial. Um, and uh, just trying to get back into sort of normal swing of life. Um, but uh, it's still really cool to follow along um, the Olympics. As you've been talking to friends and family and people in your life, what's the re what's the one reoccurring question that everyone keeps asking you? <laughs> oddly enough uh the first question is like how do you feel <laughs> and sometimes i don't really know <laughs> um if i'm tired or or jet lagged or or whatnot but but in all seriousness though um it's just really really uh cool to experience and to go after a goal and really understanding that it's it's the the process and really not the end goal like of course everybody wants to win um but i think to be able to set your mind on a goal and, and to, to do the best you possibly can. And I, I do believe that I had probably one of my best races, um, even though it didn't really work out the way I wanted to, but I felt like I didn't make very many mistakes, uh, personally. So, um, yeah, I can be pretty happy. And, um, even also just being blessed with another day, I think, I can be happy with just about any situation. So, Corinne, you were seventh place in the women's road race. You made it into that elite group coming into the speedway there together. I mean, how do you feel about that result specifically? Um, where you know, what what's your overall assessment of that result? Yeah, like I said, I think I'm pretty pretty happy with it, um, or you know, pretty satisfied. I can't maybe say happy because, of course, I wanted more, but. 
I, it's hard for me to be disappointed about it. Um, it's my first Olympics. Um, I obviously came into the race with really good momentum off of the Giro. Um, so I think I prepared really well and I'm kind of back on the form that I'm, I'm used to. Um, so I can just be happy with that in itself. But, uh, yeah, I mean, race wise, I think I, I didn't really make a lot of mistakes personally for my race. Um, I was always in, in the front group. Um, I just kind of lost contact in the, in the last, uh, five or six K. Um, but I was able to make it back for, for the sprint in the end. Um, yeah, I mean, a medal would be cool. Um, and it was in the cards, but yeah, if I just didn't get dropped in that little kicker before the, the racetrack, I think, um, maybe would have had a better chance to, to follow those late race attacks. Now, at what point did the USA strategy become to work for you for that finale? Obviously, you know, you were the, the last rider there from Team USA, four different riders. Was that something that was decided beforehand or was that something that evolved on the road? Uh, I think that evolved on the road. I think we obviously came into the race with four really strong strong riders um and kind of depending how the race unfolded um see how our our cards were are better to play um and i think after that um the doshi doshi pass that long at the end of 60k of just uphill um i was the only one who made it into that into that front group so um, it was kind of reassessing in the moment how the front group would work and it just kind of wasn't an enemy was off solo already. So, uh, it regrouped and, um, yeah, Leia and, and Chloe and, and Ruth all came back. So I think at that point, you know, there was still the three off the front plus enemy. So we were a little bit on the back foot. And so we had to put some, put some work into, to try and bring it back. How did you deal with the pressure in that moment, knowing that you were going to be the person who would ultimately be going for the win? I mean, did it was it racing as normal, or did you do you remember there being any added feelings of of pressure? Um, I think personally, it's like racing like normal. I think I approach each each race the same way um, and try to understand what's the best way to win. So in this case, yeah, I mean, there was still a lot that needed to be done to chase back. Um, everyone. And even when we caught Anamique, we still kind of had to keep going. And, and Chloe and Leia did good work to try and keep the speed up in the group. But the, the cooperation just wasn't there. And um, it's really difficult, too, with teams of four. And at that point, only the Duchies, I believe, had all four there. Um, so to try and, you know, and they're also a team of leaders, too. So who's going to work for them to try and chase it back? You know, so it, it became a difficult race at that point to 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 race again, in a sense, you know, um, for the for the medals. Um, but, yeah, I think, yeah, we did the best that we could. Yeah. So there's obviously, you know, so many different talking points about the outcome of this race. The first of which is, you know, whether or not people knew that uh, Anna Kiesenhofer was still off the front or whether the group was back together. You know, as you remember being in that group rumbling onto the track, did you know that there was still another rider out front or did you think that it was Grupo Compacto? Yeah, I totally knew. Um, I knew there was three off the front and... um, there was one last time board um, entering the racetrack and um, I saw one minute 30 and I was thinking like, oh man, that's, that's pretty, pretty far. But then at the top, or I guess sort of the middle of that climb where there's the tunnel, we caught the, the Polish and the Israeli and, but it was only two. So I was a little bit confused as well. So I, I knew for sure that there was still one more because we only caught two. Um, and then after the tunnel, I kind of got distance off the back of that group and I was a little bit cross-eyed. So from that point on, I didn't know exactly what happened, whether we had caught her or not. And then I had to chase back onto that group. So so from that point, I didn't know exactly whether we had caught her or not, but I knew at the tunnel that there was still one more person off the front. When you have been following the conversation after the race about this, about, you know, why did this happen and how could this confusion have happened, yada, yada, yada. I mean, what do you chalk it up to as someone who is in the race and who's been in a million different bike races? Like, how do you um, view and put into perspective, um, you know, the fact that this 
that that you know there were some riders who didn't know there was still one one rider up the road yeah i think it's interesting i think you can't really just blame one thing um you know we're all used to racing all year with six other riders and with radios and and that's kind of like our day in day out so that's kind of what we're used to um and then you have the biggest races of the season world championships and olympics and there's no radios so you go from like you know racing in one style to another and also added on top of racing without radios um you know it's teams of four and then also granted it's a field of 67 so it's easier to go back to the car but you're also not going to go back to the car when it's strung out or there's barrage and you, you actually can't go to your car um and then to be fair the boards there were boards i would say maybe every 10k or so which i don't think is as often as it should be um but it was also really hard to see like you really had to be in the top five to see what the time was on the board um on a whiteboard with like a little you know dry erase marker and it wasn't really a strong uh you know uh writing like it wasn't so dark so you really have to be vigilant in and paying attention to the race um and we obviously saw them all attack in the beginning um but to know their time gaps and everything is it's it's hard to stay on top of because there and then there's a race race uh within a race and you're you're racing on top of the three who are out at front so it's a lot to manage and um you know the adrenaline is obviously high um and then for you know an enemy's case she also crashed so there's a lot going on and i think you can't just uh talk us down talk the athletes down because you know we didn't know what was going on but to be fair we do know what's going on but we just don't know all of the details you know? Yeah. And that's what it struck out to me is that you started to see, you know, some of the boards with the time gaps and it's like, Oh, is that the time gap from the two back to the main field or from the one up the road back up to the main field? And, you know, when there start to be these different groups out there, um, that's where I, I could totally understand it being tricky. And, um, you know, it, it just seems like it was a really difficult, um, set of information to read on the biggest race when you're all going as hard as you can. And, you know, that's, that's just sort of, that's the outcome. Yeah. And it's like, who wants to go back to the car? You know, like normally you don't want to at at a late point in the race, you don't really want to go back to the car and waste energy that you could use to win the race. So there's a quite fine balance. And with teams of four, like, I think for the most part, you all really have to be leaders. So which one of your leaders are going to go back to the car to get info? You know, so it's a really tricky game. And um, yeah, it, all those little details add up in the end. Um, but I mean, I don't think we're stupid, stupid bike racers because of that. Uh, that said, <laughs> I mean, how are you viewing um, Anna Kiesenhofer's overall win? I mean, are you viewing this through the lens of confusion or are you viewing this through, you know, the lens of a superhuman effort? Yeah, maybe a little bit of both, uh, but confusion more on on the main field's part, not her part. I mean, she did the right thing when you come to the Olympics solo. Um, You either make a really big gamble and you either win or lose it all, or you just hang on and you kind of wait to get dropped. So she took the gamble and she was the one who stayed away for 137K. I mean, she attacked and, you know, right after the neutral and kilometer zero on the bridge. So, I mean, I think it's well, well deserved. That was a huge effort. Um, I think just more confusing on the field's part to, to maybe not do their, their homework on who she was and how good she is at the moment and, and not allowing 10 minutes, uh, to go up the road. And also the Dutch tactics were super strange. And the only people who were really chasing was the Germans. And then we started chasing later in the race. Um, and then the Dutch would just like oddly attack, which in the end actually slows everything down. So, uh, not entirely sure where they, what they thought they were doing. <laughs> yeah. And that was kind of our assessment of the race as well, which is on paper, they're by far the strongest team, but it was like they almost, they needed a, on a, or a, a Ellen Van Dyke type character, like a road captain to be sacrificing herself and to keep tabs on the information and to be doing all this stuff. And, you know, they had these four amazing, very strong riders who are all capable of winning in different ways, but it's like, it's sort of like the, the team of four individuals. And that's how, you know, us sitting on our couches, uh, watching it, that was our assessment of that. But yeah, I'm really curious of what your assessment was of being there and sort of watching it. 
Yeah, it's totally true. I think the numbers really doesn't help. And then, you know, you have five teams of four and then a few teams of three and then it goes down to two and one. So, I mean, what individual is going to chase for a team with numbers? Nobody. So in the end, it's just, uh, you know, one person racing another. And sometimes it even feels like like a junior race, you know, because you're all kind of there on your own trying to figure out how you're going to win. Um, there's not doesn't seem like there's a lot of teamwork going on um in the whole field because there really isn't i mean we're there's just a lot of individuals there so it's really different kind of racing compared to what we do you know every weekend um and you know at the giro and things like that so it's hard you can't really compare it to another race because it's it's just not the same well, that's good perspective. I really appreciate that, Corinne, and I, I hope that will open some people's eyes up to the race and why it unfolded the way it did and how um, situations like that can be. Um, you know, so much of the Olympic experience, I have to imagine, was the weirdness behind the scenes of COVID protocols and travel and check-ins and all this weird stuff. I was at the Olympics in 2008 in Beijing, and you know that was not going through a global pandemic, and it was very strange to be on the media end. Um, when you think back to that side of the experience, what are some memories and some scenes that like you you think you will uh, always remember about like the behind the scenes experience at the Olympics? I guess it's like a, the behind the mask experience, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, wearing masks all the time and then always using hand sanitizer for for food. Um, it was like you had to wear gloves to pick up your food and then sometimes, you know, you just kind of opt to, to go eat in your room because there's just too many people down um, in the dinner area. So there's things like that. And um, we were lucky enough to stay in the village um, the evening before the race because the start was closer to Tokyo. So it was actually really cool to kind of round out the entire Olympic experience and, and get a day at the village to see what it's really like. Um, but to be honest and personally honest, after the last year, uh, it was really, really overwhelming being at the village. Um, even coming from the States and things are a little more um, open now, uh, the village was just insane. I mean, we're talking like 20 buildings of each country, um, everyone's like housed up in the village, uh, and then everyone eats at the same dining hall and it's just like giant masses of people. So <laughs> one day was plenty good for me. I had a little bit of anxiety at the, at the dining hall, but, um, to be honest, I could still feel the, the Olympic spirit and the Olympic movement and, uh, yeah, just seeing all the different countries together and, and different, uh, sports and athletes and, you know, different kinds of athletes. It was really amazing to see, like, I'm just like so tiny. And then uh, on my flight over to Tokyo, I was with like the USA volleyball team. So I was like looking straight up like, man, you girls are so tall <laughs> or I'm just really small. But uh, it's just a, and a really, really cool thing to see. And, you know, sports is something that I really love and I think is really amazing. Uh, so it was a cool uh, environment to be in. That is amazing. I can only imagine Corinne Rivera sitting in a seat next to like, you know, some volleyball player. And it's like Olympian, Olympian. Yeah. Um, I remember from <laughs> my experience in 2008 going around to public places, you could always spot the Olympians because they were people with these like, you know, very extreme body types, very tall, very muscular, very mm -hmm. small, very whatever. And it's sort of the normal schlubby people like us were just like, oh, yeah, there we go. Like, you know, it's the <laughs> 0.1% of body types in all manners of directions all gathered in one spot exactly it's it's really funny and amazing to see um something else i've been interested about is that you know the lack of media access and you know smaller groups of media at this year's olympics i feel like has put a lot of um the 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 job on on the athletes and with social media of like sort of explaining what happened with the race and expressing emotions and expressing feelings because normally you know you cross the line and a bunch of reporters are going to come up to you and ask you questions or and we just there's nothing like that going on at the race and so um, I'm curious your perspective on that and I saw you know you had some Instagram messages updating people about what went on but you know with with the the lack of media. And the platform there being social media, how did you find it? And how did you sort of navigate getting the the points across that you wanted to get across? Yeah, I think it's really cool because then it's kind of coming from the source and it doesn't have to be interpret, interpreted through through someone else. No offense, Fred. 
but uh <laughs> i think uh then we can kind of get our words out there and and how we really feel about how everything went down um but obviously like i'm not doing a race report on how everything happened until you you asked me but um i think uh no i think it's cool we were able to to you know show maybe a little more creative side i mean i was showing my outfits every day of you know what <laughs> what i was wearing cuz we got an inordinate amount of of clothing uh which i my goal was to wear every single piece before i left but that was pretty much impossible to for only being there for a week but um no i think we just make it a little bit more creative and and the things that we see on the inside and have to deal with um even like covid testing every morning uh and then trying to make something fun out of it and and posting it so um I thought it was pretty fun. I know, but as a journalist, I want the raw emotion of the finish line of, oh, I'm so pissed off at the Dutch. Ah! As opposed to the next day later in the sanitized, nice, crafted, like you know, gracious post. But I get it. I see, I can see both sides of that battle. I think I was I was pretty tired once I crossed that line. I So what I did is I didn't go straight to the reporters. I just went and sat on the grass. So... I crossed the line. I got like third in, in the little field sprint. And then I saw Anna Meek like really stoked and happy, elated, hugging her, her, uh, soigneur. And then I saw the Austrian laying down on the floor and I was like, huh, she wasn't in our group and she's laying down on the floor. It seems like she's been there longer than Anna Meek. So I was like, I feel like I'm something happened here. And I was like, we need to go far away. I need to watch this from far. And then I was <laughs> just like laying down on the grass with our American swanier Rachel, and I was like, the Austrian won, didn't she? <laughs> and Rachel's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, huh, all right, chapeau, okay. <laughs> and then Leia comes up, and we're just kind of, like, debriefing on the grass, just absolutely exhausted. So that's the raw, raw emotion for you. And plus there was a, a moment where I got caught on TV talking to Kazia about the race, and luckily I realized I was on live TV, and and caught myself before I went a little too too far. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's amazing. Yeah, just sort of like, boy, I wonder, uh, we're going to watch the emotional uh, transformation here when uh, Anamik learns that she has not indeed won, but has gotten the silver medal. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it sounds like a heck of an experience. And, uh, you know, Corinne, my last question for you, and then I'll let you get on your with your day, which is, you know, your um, father, Wally, tragically passed um, in the months before the Olympics. And, you know, Wally was a, a friend of Ella News, spoke to him many times, always made it a point to talk to him at the race. And I know how much he um, cheerleaded for you and how much your cycling career meant to him. And, um, I'm just curious, you know, what the, what, uh, what of Wally's memory and your dedication to him, et cetera, came with you to the games and um, how that emotion manifested itself in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I still have hard moments and I, I think about him every day um, and it's not, not the easiest thing to talk about, but, you know, um, he gives me a lot of emo- uh, motivation and, and inspiration because he did a lot for me to to get me to where I am at this point in my career. And this was always a a big goal of mine and I think as well as his to, to make it to the Olympics. And uh, yeah, I mean, the family, my parents both had tickets booked at the beginning of 2020 before the pandemic really hit. And my fiance Nate also had his ticket booked. Um, so I always told them, I said, well, whether I make the team or not, I think Tokyo is going to be cool. And I think whether, you, you know, I'm there or not, Olympics is still an experience to to go to, even as a spectator. So, um, like, from that sense, I think I, I wanted them to experience it just as much as I did, even if I didn't make it for whatever reason. Um, but I stuck it out and I kept my head in the game uh, through it all. And I think uh, in, in the end, I just really want to make – my dad proud because that's what he he would have wanted and uh just kind of continue carrying on his legacy of of just always giving 110 percent well corinne i mean all of us here at vela news we're all heartbroken about your loss and um you know our deepest sympathies go to you and your family again while he was 
um, a tremendous friend of Elenu's and I again loved seeing him at the races and I uh, I just know how much he, um, he spoke positively about your experience in the sport and how happy he was to see you out there and um, I'm just really overjoyed that you were able to have that experience again um, and I appreciate you sharing those thoughts and emotions with us today of course any anything for you Fred <laughs> Well, Corinne Rivera, we uh, loved watching you in that race. It was uh, a thrilling experience, and um, I'm making a prediction the first of several to come. Um, I'll let you get on with your day and the return to racing, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Right on. Thank you, Fred. <laughs>